0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to a new episode of Relative to Pitch. Today, we are so, so, so excited, you guys, to have with us a special guest. I've been wait, I've like been wanting him on this podcast since the summertime when I met him at the UT workshop. So please give a big, warm welcome to licensed professional counselor Nathan Langford. He's the director of career education at the University of Texas off at Austin. Please welcome to our village, everybody. Hello, thank you. How are you doing? How is that? I
1: I am doing so well. It's so great to see all of you today. I'm, I, yes, uh, we've been talking about this for so long. I'm so excited to be here and have a dialogue with all of you. And um, hopefully it's a conversation that resonates far and long. Yes. Yes.
0: Well, I know that during the workshop, one thing for anybody that is out there, one special thing about the UT workshop, every morning we had... Uh, between 30 to an hour of just sitting and talking. um, And and you just led us through great words, just really getting us set for the day. Because as we know, conducting workshops or any workshops in general can be very stressful. Mm -hmm. And having that moment with you always kind of put us all at ease. I remember as we would walk to our first session uh, or our first conducting thing, everybody's like, I feel way more at peace right now.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Now, that's actually, it's funny you say that. The reason that I wanted to start those mindfulness meditation and like mental health sessions at the conducting symposium was my own experience at conducting symposiums where I would go up there and just, you know, within three minutes of getting feedback, I would just be like catatonic on the podium, (laughs) just completely anxious and stressed out. And yeah, it was years ago that I, um, I went to Jerry Junkin and I said, what if I could promise you that all of your conducting workshops would be more present grounded in, in the here and now? And he said, Tell me what you got, and this is how this idea came to be. So it's an amazing project. We'll be back at it this summer as well. And yes, I love teaching mindfulness meditation and mental health sessions at the Conducting Clinic.
0: It's absolutely something that is needed. In fact, um, also is a great teaching tool because a lot of the people that are at the educa- or the um, symposium are educators, and I remember. Mm-hmm. That is something that I'm going take back in the classroom of just like, okay, especially before, you know, you have your UIL, MPAs, your LGPEs, where your student's about to do this high stressful thing, just taking that mindful meditation of like, all right, really just feel where you are right now. And yeah. be um, I think it is a special thing. So first tell us a little bit about you, you know, where are you from and how did you get to where you are and what do you do now?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I've got a a unique journey through this musical world that I think kind of informs a lot of the ways that I think about things. I, I grew up in the Dallas area originally. I um, earned a bachelor's degree in music education from LSU. Go Tigers! One of the greatest decisions of my life to become a purple and gold tiger. Um, but um, yeah, after I... Um, finished my degree at LSU. I'm a percussionist originally. I immediately went into a graduate program in conducting um, at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. I didn't want to go to grad school right away, but I was attracted to it because it was this unique grad program that ran all of the city's youth bands and youth orchestras. And so it was like, you're a conducting master's student, but you're going to work with high school kids every single week. And I was like, sign me up. That sounds amazing. So um, yeah, went to graduate school there, worked in arts administration for a while, then became a middle school band director in the Austin, Texas area. And during that job, I started to realize something about myself that had been a trend my entire musical career. And that was that I hadn't realized it until that moment that I loved musicians more than I loved the music, as I like to say, meaning that like the people of the work we do, were way more special to me in learning about their personal histories and backgrounds and identities was way more important to me than Lincolnshire Posey or Beethoven 5 or, you know, chamber music insert piece here. And so um, I made kind of an abrupt decision in life. I went back to graduate school again to become a therapist because I had this thought of, I had benefited from a ton of psychotherapy throughout my life um, had really made incredible strides in my own mental health. But I realized that like some of the things that put my mental health in harm's way over the years were the process of becoming a professional musician. Like it, it was the process that was the thing that created the distress. And then I thought about that in comparison to how we all talk about music, right? Like many of us talk about music as a personal savior of some kind. You know, we love to tell our parents that um, of the kids that we teach, you know, music's good for your brain, music's good for your health, music's good for your self esteem, all of which are true. But that can be true at the same time that music could be something that might be perilous to your mental health. And so with all that in mind, I went back to graduate school to think, what if I became a therapist that works with musicians specifically? And that's what I did. And um, for a long time, I was the in-house therapist for the School of Music at UT, um, UT Austin. I loved that job. Um, Moved around a little bit. Um, I moved to Bloomington, Indiana for two years where I did my coursework for a doctorate in higher education. And now I'm back at the University of Texas where, um, yeah, I don't work in our School of Music anymore. Now I work at the whole campus level where I help develop programs that help people to answer the age-old question, what should I be when I grow up? Which is um, the way that we treat it at UT now, at least the way that we're starting to, is way more with like a mental health intersectional lens of like, to understand what you want to do for the rest of your life, you've got to consider mental health and you've got to consider lived experience. And so... That's the work that I do now, but I'm still a musician at heart. Everywhere I go, I um, still get a chance—a handful of times a year—to go work with um, with ensembles, orchestras, college music departments, and um, conferences on this topic of how we can improve the mental health of the music experience.
2: Mm-hmm. Love that.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: No, that's, that's such an interesting lens, this idea of of, of focusing on mental health, when it comes to thinking about careers, and what do you want to do for the rest of your life, because that's not really something we necessarily put at the forefront of why we want to do these things. I, I definitely don't think it was necessarily necessarily something I thought about when I was thinking about what I wanted to do. And I even think about how many different people would be in the, a different career field if they did place that as like mm-hmm. the focal point? Yeah. Um, and I'm thinking back to one of the latest or biggest traumatic events that happened for everyone. I'm sure during COVID, you had a lot of interesting sessions and talks with many students about the possibility of changing their career. It was scary. Mm -hmm. Being a musician during that time because we're like, Are we ever gonna be able to perform again? For teachers, it was like, Who am I gonna be teaching? Like, does anyone even want to do this anymore? I know for myself, COVID was a pivotal moment for me where I, you know, I decided I did have an interest in nonprofit arts and, and arts administration. And I know a lot of people had the same thing where they took what happened and kind of pivoted. What how did you and your team navigate all these students coming to you and being like, I feel like I'm shifting I don't know what to do or I don't know what to shift to how was that
1: Oh that's a great question and I think that like you know if we don't bring in these more holistic pieces to the conversation like mental health like identity like personal values we end up with a very narrow decision making system for how what job or career I should have and it's like nine times out of 10 I hear students they say what am I good at You know, and that's, and it's interesting. I resonate with that too. Cause when I decided to walk away from being a band director to become a therapist, the number one piece of resistance I got from friends and colleagues was why would you walk away from being a band director? You're good at it. And it's like, but I could be good at something and not satisfied by it at the exact same time, Mm -hmm. or I could be good at something and realize it does not fit within the greater value scope of my life at the exact same time. In fact, um, being probably super personal here for a second, but I think it's a valuable exercise for others. The, if I synthesized down the exact thing, the exact thing that made me realize I couldn't be a band director forever, it was that I could not have the family I wanted one day and be a band director at the same time, knowing myself personally of like, I, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to care about these kids a whole heck of a lot. And I'm not sure I can sustain that and the family that I want to have all at once. So um, yeah, but in terms of how we manage students talking about these conversations, I think it, gosh, yeah, especially with music students, because there was so much fear and so much concern. And I think it really comes back to, especially in the college world, which is where I work as I work in higher education. But I think this kind of applies to a lot of people, is we often don't realize all of the competencies that we're acquiring in the course of a bachelor's degree. You know, I have so many people that I've worked with as their therapists, that the thing we are, we are talking about in session is changing career. And they say, well, all I have is this stinking music degree. I can't do anything else with it other than music. And it's like, oh my gosh, wait, 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 wait. You can do so much. Let's talk about the level of, um, you know, outside of the box thinking that you've had to do. Let's talk about the creativity you've had to possess. Let's talk about the immense amount of organization and multitasking. Like, I mean, it's just about reframing those." skills if that's something that you want to. And then on top of all of that, when I think about the 21st century, gosh, it's been the 21st century for 23 years. I should stop saying that. When I talk about the musician of 2023, the one that is successful does more than just plays their instrument or sings. They also know how to manage their brand. They know how to do some basic personal finance. They know how to, you know, do a lot of other things that I think we are Doing a disservice to the holistic development of our students if we're not addressing those other things as well in the course of a music degree, and not because all of our music students should go to law school or should go become, you know, coders, but it's because the music world is becoming more complex and our degrees have to evolve with them.
0: Mm. Yes, yes. Um, Michael, uh, me and Michael were just talking very similar to this last night, Um, and I'm gonna say just two things, and I'm let Michael take it over, but. Uh, when you said about our our curriculum and our education hasn't evolved with our students. And I can say this as a person who was, you know, uh, currently in a master's degree and was in a, a bachelor's a couple of years ago. And I remember thinking, okay, this is, kind of feels, you know, outdated a little bit. Uh, Mm -hmm. This is not what we're dealing with right now. What you said about having your own brand. uh, TikTok is a big thing right now. And a lot of people that are, you know, really uh, connecting with each other is through this social media and and how to be a musician in this age. And our collegiate curriculums are not teaching students how to do that. We're still Mm -hmm. teaching students how to survive in the 1960s. And I, every, I mean, I think this is the third podcast episode in a row where I've brought this up, but Cynthia Johnson Turner said it the best. If you were to take somebody from a 1950s or earlier, like the Sousa band and put them in a band today, they would know what to do. They truly will know. I need to take out my instrument, I need to do this. There hasn't been much innovation in our classrooms. Is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? I mean, it's it depending on your perception of life, but to me i think something needs to to be updated for our kids that we have in front of us
2: um and i'll piggyback off of that cuz we were, we were talking about this last night cuz i i have some plans of the work to send to the people i work for but like the biggest thing i'm like now realizing on the other side of it is like we have all these freshmen and we call them freshmen and they do freshman things but Why they do freshman things, I believe is starting – I'm starting to believe is we have let children, because they are children still, Mm -hmm. choose this passion and make it a career, but don't give them the psychological help of how to make something that you were passionate for, that was your safe space, that was your haven and band, and be like, this is now your work. This is now your art. This is how you will ultimately make money. Yeah. But how to handle that psychologically of like, oh, and also a lot of people who don't have private lessons and all this other stuff or theory help. Wait, I just don't sit in band 24 hours a day. That's not Mm -hmm. what a music major is. So it's like we're not preparing our freshmen properly. And in terms of like how to turn the passion into work, how to balance a schedule when high school has ultimately handed us everything. Every high school is like, oh, no, now it's you. You have to be an adult. No, you're still going to hand us everything. You're going to tell us when homework's due, and you're going to help us do homework by like, hey, y'all can take the last 30 minutes of class to do homework. Like, I'm not saying that's bad, but you're still handing everything out. So college is the first time people are on their own. And we're just like, okay, have all this and be an amazing person and take lessons and do theory and do piano and all these other things. And if you make a mistake, we'll just call your freshman, and if you're struggling, we'll just say, oh, it's freshman year,
3: mm. and we'll
2: just move on about it. And that's, like, something to me, I'm just like, what is going on? Why isn't this a thing?
1: Yeah, uh, gosh. And, yeah. Yeah. And, and you're bringing up something, I think, th- that from the mental health perspective of it, I often think about, which is, like, maladaptive and unhealthy mental health thinking patterns, they start – in a void of options, like if there's nothing to take the place, that is exactly when we start to, and basically what I, when you were just talking about first year college students, all I could think about was what are the myths that we start to tell ourselves our first year of college that we think are going to help us su- succeed? Like the number one, one that I hear from students in music schools that I, I I said the exact same thing to myself as a freshman was something to the tune of, I'm not the most talented person in the room, but damn it, I'm going to work harder than everybody else. It's like classic first year college student thing to say, not even first year, but all years of college. But that that's like, you know, we all like start in college with this like shell shock of, oh, wow, at my high school, I was probably the best if I'm now doing this, but I have now arrived in a university or college setting where everybody is as good as I was. And, you know, we don't create space to acknowledge that, own it, and then also work with the mental health impacts of that shock. And so I think that, you know, when we're talking about developing, you know, standards for success, it's also, you know, gosh, one one of the number one things that faculty like to think they're going to have a gotcha moment with me on this stuff when we talk is like, are you saying that music school should be easier in this name of mental health? And I'm saying, no, 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 never. I'm not saying the music school should be easier. I'm saying the music school should be more responsive to the developmental needs of the student. And that might mean we talk about things different with 18 year olds than we do 23 year olds. And that might mean that we bake into the freshman year, like actual tangible ways to practice, right? I mean, gosh, you you know, you're, you're, you're trumpet faculty, Michael. So like, you know, how, how often students go into a practice room and if the goal is to get better, they're just going to come out anxious and upset with themselves. But if the goal is to play this scale this much faster, we're going to get somewhere.
2: Yeah. And that's something I've had to like realize with teaching is like, I can't just assign all this stuff. I need yeah. like, if I'm assigned scales, let me give them a tempo marking. Let me give them exactly the way I want them to play it. Um, and all this other stuff. And then we were talking about brand and handling your brand you're talking oh, about. yeah. And what I'm doing next year in my syllabus is everybody in the studio has to play a part in our social media presence.
1: Oh, I love that.
2: Because we, well, first of all, we need it because hashtag recruiting, hashtag make me more money. But, you know, <laughs> but also yep. these kids need to figure out what is the modern musician. Mm-hmm. I'm also figuring out like what my bag was is I was like Trumper performance, but low key, I still love band. And in the back of my head, I'm a band director. So I get mm-hmm. friends with all these band directors. That was my bag. When I came back, I knew there was a bunch of people who liked me. So let me go and work with them and stuff. Every student needs to figure out what they're good at or yes. where's one of their niche. So when they go into their masters, they can expand it while growing other areas. So they know how to become in the real world and where they fit. There's enough jobs for all of us. I figured that out this year. And I was like, oh, there's never going to be enough jobs for us. That's why we're all going to make money. If you can't win an academic job or a playing job, you have to be a band director. And if you can't do that, then... Mm-hmm work at mcdonald's question mark like (laughs) how like a lot of people put it nowadays in this era of things and that's why as you were saying we can't make music school easier but we need to give them the tangible tools to succeed in music yes yes people quitting that could succeed if we gave them the tools
1: yes and and you know and one other one other thought on that too is that like when I'm working with students, not even just in music, but when in other disciplines at UT, one of the number one, like I one of the ways I try to reframe the career conversation is not what are you going to love doing forever, but what can sustain you for long periods of time? I think that the word sustenance and sustaining really resonates with students. And the, and the reason why, because it's like, I loved being a band director for three years, but it was like, oh, no, 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 I can't do this for a decade. And, you know, and I also think that we have to when we think about careers and when we think about musical careers especially, we have to be more open to the idea that they only need to last a certain season of our life, you know? Like, my mom comes from a different era, and my mom had one job from age 18 to the day she retired, you know? Yep, she um, graduated from high school, became a flight attendant, and 50 years later, she retired. That doesn't happen anymore, and it's never going to happen ever again. (laughs) And so it's like, why, why does a job need to last forever? Why can't a job provide... Um, financial sustenance you know joy and curiosity and then in five years we don't treat ourselves like we failed and we don't um, talk about it as a shortcoming when we change careers because it doesn't have to be
2: yeah didn't on on top of that and also i'm very bad with social media didn't sizza or one of a major artist say she's leaving music
0: yes yeah, it was. Oh, wow. And at the exactly. top of, this is at the top of her, you know, reign. Like she just released her second big studio album, you know, got the number one single. I think she just broke the record for the uh, one of the first female to have a number one single for like 10 weeks on Spotify or something like that. So like at the top of the top of her career, she's like, I'm done. But
2: mm, wow, her,
0: her fans know that like, She's had a mental battle with that specific side of mu- the music community, which mm-hmm, we also mm-hmm. don't talk about, is the the popular culture music side. Um, I remember when her album came out, she uh, uh, like a, a voicemail or something was released of her just like, so distraught and crying because her record label was was making her do things that she didn't want to do, like release mm. the album. But you can always turn that into being a band director or being a classical musician of, you have this to do, you have this to do. Um, and you don't feel it's like your time right now, but because everybody else is doing it, you know, especially with social media, it's like, well, I think I have to do it because everybody else is doing it. So I'm pretty sure you've had some students who've come to you that are like, I don't think I can do this because I've seen so-and-so-and-so do this and do that. I know Mm -hmm. we've talked about it on here, how we look at social media and social media gives the presence of like, okay, they're always succeeding. So if I'm not always succeeding, I'm doing something wrong and
1: I should not be in this field. Oh, Yeah to those to those students that that really that's a true fear yes and i think that you know compare and despair as we call it in my world has only become stronger and stronger and stronger because of social media and you know if we are all cre- you know I, the thing i lo- love to tell my students is when's the last time one of your friends brushed their teeth on instagram or like you know created a like a went in, went live on a social media platform while they had like the flu and they l- laid in bed and you know Drank Sprite and ate crackers. Like we don't show people that part of ourselves because it's, and so, you know, I think that it can become so tempting to see what the journey that other people have had and only view it as ascendant, especially if by viewing their pathway as ascendant, we can view our pathway as stagnating. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, and when that happens, oh, the you know, when we're talking about a career path, it's like, you know, God, our parents have taught us, capitalism have, has taught us, all of these structures of power have taught us that it's linear and that it's stepwise. And neither of those is actually true. You know, a career path is not ascending a ladder. It is a walk in the forest where, like, you go left, you go right, you go up, you go down, you go under the tree, over the tree. And I think that, you know, so often we can just see other people's accomplishments as a sign that we have not gotten as far as they have. When the truth is, is that our own journey is so unique to us and so unique to us living intrinsically and connected to our own personal values that it's not that we have to go do what somebody else did to be successful. It's that we have to listen to our own personal path and be congruent to that. And if we can find that congruence, that's when we're going to find our own personal best version of success.
3: Yeah. No, speaking of, 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 that, and I don't know. We talk a lot about individuality and being like unique Mm -hmm. and like the, it's just too often and social media is to blame for a lot of this, but it's also how careers have been set up. It's it's so true. Like if you want to do this, you have to do this and you have to do this. Like it's just the only way to get to point be is you have to go through all of these different points and that's just it's false it's yeah. just not true. that's what they want to tell you so that you keep feeding into the machine the structures and the systems that they have created to do so but it's been so funny i there have been so many times where i've been making decisions or it's been come time to make decisions and you know, I've had the one side of professors and past people in my life who've tried to say, Oh, well like, you know, most people do this and da 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 and then I've had other people, usually including these two and my mom who are kind of like, you're not like you're not everyone else, you know, Mm. like you are on your own path, you know, and so if this is right for you, it's right for you. And it's hard when you do see so many people who even are whatever you deem successful for whatever standard or whatever career, they all went through the same path, it's hard to mentally say I can still do get to the point they're at without doing that it is hard and I, I yes I have I acknowledge that because I've been there um and tried to like tell myself it's okay you don't have to do it to get to that place and it, it when you, especially when you're in the belly of it and you haven't mm-hmm. gotten out on the other side and so and it's hard especially when you're in a position where you're teaching like all of us are and you're mentoring and you're trying to tell them these things and you can't be like well I'm not saying that it's not a a way to get there but i'm saying that it's not the only way yes you know
1: oh no that's so true and it's that you know the it's and it's and it's interesting because still one of the number one ways to move ahead is to copy and paste somebody else's pathway and it's still good advice it's just a matter of copy and paste three people's pathway and then make a cocktail of all of their experiences you know, like it's because it's still like, I mean, gosh, we all do it, right? It's like, I mean, if you want what somebody else has, buy them a cup of coffee and ask how they got there, you know, but then be open. And, and you know, here's why I love the idea of it being a coffee date and not watching them on Instagram in the shadows is that like, if you get somebody talking over a cup of coffee, you're actually going to learn that it was like really ugly and crazy on the way there and not, you're only just going to see the glamorized version of it. You know, it's like the more that we can actually engage in dialogues with people. And that's a hard thing, I think, for especially college students to practice is like that person has what I want. That that inherently by them having something that I want, that creates a power dynamic. But I'm supposed to like email them out of the blue and ask them if I could buy them a cup of coffee or talk to them on Zoom. It's like, absolutely. Because, yeah, you're building a relationship. And the more that we build relationships, we realize that everyone's human and we've all had our own stuff that we've sorted through.
2: Well, and that, especially like for um, all of our pathways and everybody's pathway, like the senior year of undergraduate, you're used to people winning jobs, of being a band director, going to grad school. And then a gap year, it seems like, oh, Mm. you don't know what you want to do. No, I do. Just first, let me some people like, let me get my bag right. Let me make sure I'm not going out here in debt when Mm -hmm. a lot of starting salaries are not because we are as like musicians are as specialized as a lot of other fields and the pay sometimes doesn't equate that, but that's not why we do it. I Mm think, I I don't think we do it because we want to make $200,000. Like that would be great. That'd be cool. Hey, Mm -hmm. that's not why we do it. But like that, that pivotal moment of like, okay, you didn't want a band director job and you have an education major, what did you do wrong? And that's mm. circling your head. Or if you're a performance person and you didn't get a, you didn't get into any of your master's schools or you did, and you didn't get an assistantship. You're like, wait, what did I do wrong? And then you see a gap year as failure instead of like, okay, I'm not going to go pay for grad school. Let me find a grad school who wants me. Yes. Me. And that's like something I was like thinking of like the other day, because me and Lauren were on that path like grad school and then when those decisions starts coming in and sometimes you get hit with a no, because I got hit with a no first, I'm like,
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was
2: just like, I was like, please hide me. <laughs>
1: uh,
2: but now I'm just like, okay, that's cool. That You were not the fit. That's like, that just like, it shows you like, it hurts, it sucks, cry about it. But like, you weren't ultimately the fit and that's not where you were supposed to end
1: up. Yeah. And That's when what I, mean. I what, oh gosh, I'm, no, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. Yeah, like I even just think about like and that that gap year absolutely and then also career pathways that are like out of the typical you know like i mean i was um i was telling lauren before we hopped on like the recording part of this um this conversation that like you know fresh out of graduate school my first job was to be an education manager of a symphony orchestra like a, a professional symphony where I put on children's concerts and I put on, um, I did like a coffee shop string quartet series where we took string quartets to random local coffee shops and stuff like that. And like all kinds of stuff like that. And all of my more band directory friends were, were just like, Hey, hey with the, but that's not band director. Like, what are you doing here? Like, are you sure that you, have you gone astray? Like what's wrong with you? And it's like, I saw an opportunity to stay in a city that I love to learn things and to just like be a sponge around something interesting and new. And, and it, and the thoughts of my friends started to get in my head. And there, when I finally decided I did want I become a band director in all of these job interviews, I was sitting here, like trying to explain away my two years of being a symphony administrator. And then every single person I talked to was like, no, that's super cool. Like, and- I love that you, I love that you did that. Like, I love that you have this like kind of multidimensional experience. And so like, yeah, like the very things that we perceive as weaknesses, because we think they're atypical are what make us unicorns in a field of people that are nervous about being different. So. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. And, you know, uh, and that goes,
0: honestly, not just musician, but that just goes as people as human beings. Oh, Yeah. We are afraid to be different until we finally have this kind of self realization of my difference and my uniqueness is what sets me apart, what really gives me that advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that goes into the diversity discussion. When I think, I remember me and Lori used to have that diversity conversation about being, you know, some of the only Black people in, in the rooms. And then, and at first she used to infuriate us. Like, why, mm. why? But then it turned into, okay, let's use this as, as a good experience. Let's use this to open the door for others. Let's use how we are different in this room to really inspire some change here because, yeah, we can sit here and mope and and moan about being different, but we can use this to our advantage. And that's usually what the people who are in that um, the category of they know what they're doing, you know, the ones that picked us for a reason. They're like, oh, yeah, we just want this. No, 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 no. Well, you pick two people who are going to inspire some change, who is really going to make this, who are going to use our differences as our advantage. Um, and it's something that you, um, that I took from you, where you said control is like a wet fish. <laughs> and I, I've thought about this for a long, long, long time because when we are in those situations, like I, I remember I used to say, I do not like not being in control. I don't, I don't like that. Like I need to know what, what things are going on. I need to know exactly. But when you explain that, which I, I want you to explain it because you're working <laughs> better. <laughs> but it, it all made sense. And I was way put more at ease. So please explain that that beautiful sentiment of knowledge.
1: Oh my God, I love, first of all, I love when my one-liners have traction and they last beyond sessions. That's amazing. So uh, what I was referring to, yes, what one, one of my favorite things to tell college students, people that I work with in therapy, um, is this idea that like control and our relationship to control is like a wet fish. So like, let's say you and I are out, we're fishing, I'm going to talk about this. Like I fish a lot. I think I've fished once since I was seven years old. Um, And so, you know, you're out on a dock fishing and we've pulled a giant fish out of the water. And now I need to hand you the fish for a second while I get everything ready. And, you know, if you just squeeze onto that fish as tight as you possibly can, it's going to fly right out of your hands back into the water. But if you can kind of shimmy with the fish, if you can kind of stay flexible enough to the experience of having that fish in your arms, you're more likely to keep it from jumping back in the water. And I think that that's, you know, control is this thing, especially in the music world especially in conversations where we feel like we have to be so organized and meticulous and planned out, right? Like, I mean, music students are notorious five-year planners. It's like, I'm going to do this by this date and this by this date, and I'm going to create this, this, and this. I'm going to apply for this conference by this date. And, you know, uh, that's not a bad thing, but if something comes along that needs you to alter that plan, can we have enough flexibility to be responsive to that experience, whatever that might be? for you know for that individual and so no i love that that stuck with you Anthony, but that's like you know yeah it's this idea of like how do we just stay on our toes enough to be ready to embrace any experience that comes our way even if it might seem a little bit different
0: yeah and i think it, coming as a former band director and like my job i was the only band director that was in charge of six mm-hmm. to twelve my job it's to be in control it, it is you know or it is perceived to be in control. And I was thinking, like, I am going home so tired. I'm going home so drained. Uh, I remember Michael and Laura would call and like, what are you doing this weekend? Nothing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Not do- because I need to kind of have a recharge because Monday I have to be in control again. And it, it is just draining. And and when you said that, it kind of hit me because when um, that was last symposium, so last summer, which was right before I had already left my job and I was thinking, mm-hmm. if I would have had that mentality, how much things could have been different.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So it really kind of uh, sparked some some thought and in which now my master's degree, where I'm at now, I'm like, okay, I don't need to always. Be in control. Yeah. Really let the experience come to me and leave, live in this experience. For by mm-hmm. listening, uh, the College Band Directors National Association was just held at UGA, which is this big conference, and there's a lot of moving parts going on. And for a person who used to love control, I needed to know everything. But when it came to this, I was like, breathe, and everything is going to be fine let everything come to you, you know, let whenever something is wrong, let you know how to handle these situations. That is just Mm -hmm. who I am. So I'm like, okay, let's not stress because when we stress, when we make drastic decisions, which sometimes might not be the best decision.
1: Yeah, seriously. So
0: so really uh, just thinking on, on that sentiment there.
1: Yeah, you know, there's um something to be said about spontaneity and there's something to be said about almost retraining yourself to experience a feeling of like lightness and maybe even humor in a moment. Like I okay, I have to tell a 30 second story because you made me think about it. So when I was a band director, um we used to put on the middle school talent show at the school that I taught at, which uh, at the middle school talent show so you can all probably picture what these kind of things look like. And um the one of our guest judges that we found from the community was this local magician and as he walks in the door he says to me, hey, just to let you know, he's like really proud of himself. I always carry five minutes of magic on myself at any given time. And I was like, okay, I don't know what to do with that information because you're just going to be our judge tonight, but okay. And then so fast forward an hour later, and the sixth grade bassoonist is coming out to play Lady Gaga on bassoon. And 30 seconds before the performance, the the bassoon like explodes into a thousand parts all over the stage. Like All of the pieces of the bassoon are just scattered all over the floor. And I'm like, oh my God. I, I time to go into band director mode and repair a bassoon. But um this kid is like sobbing. We're in the middle of a talent show. And what do I remember? The magician judge said, I carry five minutes of magic on myself at all given times. So I'm like, magician stage. And we had five minutes of magic while I rescrewed screwed a bassoon back together. And so like, you know, I just always think of that story when we're talking about this kind of thing. Cause it's like, how do you remain spontaneous, responsive to anything? And then also almost with like a chuckle. You know, how do you, how do you find a chuckle inside yourself about things like this? Mm-hmm. Five minutes of magic. That's always got to have your five minutes of magic. So <laughs> always,
0: always.
1: Yeah. No, so
3: that's, that's so interesting in this idea of control in general. Um, yeah. It's it's so easy to try to sit down and plan exactly how everything's going to go. Like every single year of undergrad, especially going towards how do, how do I get into the master's program I want to? Yes. How I get the DMA or the PhD? How do I win the audition? And you're absolutely right. The idea of wanting to have full control is actually very debilitating. Like Mm -hmm. it's the idea that everything has to go this exact way to get me to this point is it's false. Right. Because it's the same as I think we're just talking about career wise. Like just because the success has been showed this way does not mean there are not alternate paths. Yes. The same place. Um, So having that room you know, that space that you create, that you know something can and most likely will happen. I don't think, I think all of us can speak to every single place we've gotten to has not been exactly how we thought we were going to get there and -hmm. not necessarily exactly where we thought we were going to (laughs) be either. Mm -hmm. Um, So having to, and I think the more free you are, the more open to understanding that you're not in control of everything and everyone and things are going to happen, the easier like, okay, well, this happened. Let's roll with it. Let's see, let's get them pull the musician out. <laughs> bring the musician. <laughs> yeah.
1: Exactly. Yeah, <laughs>
0: um and one thing that we've talked about, just me being a band director, both Michael and Lauren being, you know, performer educators. Um, and we we've talked to our colleagues and our friends, and um kind of what we were talking about earlier about. It is the status quo or the norm, if you're a band director, to be busy from 7 a.m. until 10 p.m. at night. Mm. To be in the, you know, be in the band room, even if you're not doing anything, just be on call until like then. Mm -hmm. Uh, And another nugget that I took from you was you said your business is not your worthiness. Mm -hmm. That really um, hit Mm. that it it really uh, stuck because I think in this field we equate we are worthy of being a band director if we are always busy or we're always of being a musician if we're always busy if we're always practicing if we're always handling something that makes us worthy yeah
1: oh Oh my, yes. And and it's such a breaking through that wall is only going to happen if enough of us all try at the exact same time, right? (laughs) It's like, uh, you know, that your busyness is like, and this idea, oh my God, like how often as colleagues in this world, hey, how have you been? How's it going? Oh, I'm busy. Like when did busy become an emotional response? You know, it's not, I'm well, I'm okay. Like, no, I'm busy. Like busy is not an emotion. So it shouldn't be a way that you can respond to that question. But it's like, I think about so many moments where, you know, often when I've worked with band programs and music departments, I ask like, can you imagine living in a world where it felt okay to lean over to your other band director colleague and say like, Hey, I'm fried. I'm going to take a 10 minute walk in the middle of the day and not have it be like, Oh, that's odd. Like, do you not care? Like, no, it's like, of course I care. I'm going to, I'm because I care. I am going to go take a 10 minute walk or, you know, I mean like, there's just so many examples i think where it's going to take all of us thinking about this differently at the same moment and creating that space where we can do exactly these things where we can learn to check in with each other not about the music we make or about the kids we teach but also just check in on a personal level and like also have it not be perceived as a sign of weakness if we say i'm exhausted or i'm tired or i'm burnt out you know like i mean gosh like have that be okay Create safety in a space to be able to say those things. Yes. Mm-hmm.
2: Yes. And Anthony Loki called me out. I'm a habitual. If I have a free day, I will fill it. Mm. I'm very bad about it. Like, literally, I'll be like, I'm going to tell you, I have four free days.
1: <laughs> okay,
2: so let me start texting these people to see if they need any help on these free days. I'm like very bad about it. It is mm-hmm. very bad. But I had like three free mornings like spread out in the past two
1: weeks did not fill them. Nice. I'm proud. And you know what? Back to that control piece we talked about a moment ago. Sometimes we need to like give ourselves the training wheels version on the way to the thing we're trying to get to. So maybe it's I have a free morning. I am going to plan it out a little bit so that I but I'm not going to plan it out with band directory things or music teaching things. I'm going to plan it out with like 45 minutes of meditation or 30 minutes at my favorite coffee shop with a novel, or I'm going to journal for 20 minutes. Like I, you know, you, you can use all those like over controlling musiciany tendencies as like a superpower with like good self-care practices instead.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I I have one last question
1: Yeah, Um, for our
0: students that are going out into these fields it seems as though sometimes the line is very blurred between when say your career gets a little hard you know mm-hmm. it's just like like in the month of march as, as we all know band directors that's your lgpe your uils you know you have like this do this do um the line is blurred of okay is this job stressful to my life or is this a stressful time
3: Mm -hmm. And
0: then it will go on to being fine. I have seen that some take it to the extreme. Some will say, no, it is fine. We're we're all great. But then I'm watching and I'm like, you're not great. Like Mm this is really not healthy for you. I've also seen where people are saying uh, this is stressful um, and I just cannot do this anymore. But it's like, well, this is just one time, but you were like, you know balloons and rainbows the other times. So <laughs> how can you discern or or let students know that, okay, how to know when we are truly being burnt out
1: versus this is a snapshot of moment in time? Oh that's an amazing question um and 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 you're absolutely right in that you know we we've entered a, because information is so easily accessible, it's so easy to start googling your next move. It's so easy to start thinking about what else, which is not always necessarily a bad thing. But you're right; we also want to have enough stick with itness that we don't let a a bump, like a like a like a hump in the road, be the thing that causes us to make like a hasty decision. And so, you know, I think about a principle that is like classic to any good. Counseling or psychotherapy that I've been a part of as a client and that I've hopefully provided to people that I've worked with. And that is this idea of we're always trying to gain a perspective that is like one height taller than we are. You know, like if we're talking about a relationship where the arguments are never resolving, how do we, instead of viewing the relationship from level to level, how do we view the relationship from a little bit taller so we can see it more holistically or in the course of like time, as you were just talking about, instead of just viewing the insanity that is March as a music educator, how do we like help somebody to zoom out a little bit to view the 12 month perspective, you know? And so I would say that that's a... It's an incredibly powerful thing to work on with somebody. And obviously I know that like, you know, therapy is more available than it's ever been, but it's also not as available that it's ever been because, you know, there are places where it is easier to get than others, but like find yourself a person. It'd be great if it's a therapist or a counselor, but find yourself a person where you can talk holistically, where you can look at your life for a moment from a higher perspective than you personally stand. You know, and that and that I think that when we do that, we can start and also a lot of this can be, you know, really benefited by mindful breathing, by grounding exercises, which is kind of like, it sounds like I'm contradicting myself, like I'm asking you to disembody yourself to be grounded. But isn't that what we're also talking about in life? It's like, how do we become more grounded than ever, while also viewing a more holistic perspective of ourselves, others and society at the same time? And so, but you're right, that's a tough one. And it's one that I think I, I hope that we teach people along their journey, ways to improve upon this and think about it more deeply, because it is something that can be improved upon. And it is something that if we, you know, gosh, I often think about the fact that I don't think music schools are graduating the best musicians, I think they're graduating the ones that are sometimes the most durable. And that's a shame, because durability should not be a hallmark of your ability to be successful, you know. And I think that that is because we could be doing a better job of literally teaching care for the self in the same yo know, gosh, um my colleague at UT and really, really close friend Ryan Kelly was said this a couple weeks ago, and he was like, what if we teach? God, I I love that he said it, because I was like, gosh, this is such a therapist thing you just said. Like, we've clearly been hanging out a lot. You know, it's like, what if we started teaching care for the self in the same way that we teach care for our musical materials? You know, God, as music educators, how often are we like, swab that instrument, care for that horn, put all your percussion mallets away. But, you know, we're not like, you know, take a deep breath, practice self-care. Remind yourself of your self-worth, <laughs> you know? Like, I mean, what if we taught care for the self in the same way that we teach care for our profession, care for our things, and care for our musical craft? I think it would be transformative.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I see it, Lauren. I see Lauren's thinking. I see, La- I, <laughs>
2: see it, I see it. The wheels. Yeah,
0: yeah. I-, I, like, see it. You can
2: almost see the smoke. It just... <laughs> You're like, by the way, Lauren.
3: Lauren, you
0: are muted, girl.
2: Or you muted. You muted as I get out.
3: Sorry, yeah. I was. No, I, I was. I was thinking so much about different things and this idea, especially from the student perspective. Of I really try as an educator with my students to embody this idea of a holistic lauren so i'm not just your teacher i like to let them know like oh i'm doing this other thing over here but also i like hanging out with my friends i like reading i like doing this and this is something that goes back to like one of our first season episodes i think of like balancing how do we balance our life as musicians Mm. but so often this idea of self-care is preached to students but then not shown to them they they there's they're teachers tell them to do it but then they see their teachers there from like the 7 a.m to 10 p.m type thing and they're like well they're not doing it so from what you're saying if I want to be successful like you it's not really about self-care it's about your durability it's about me being able to push through and handle anything which I I mean yeah no I was just thinking a lot about that about how it's so easy as a student to like even if you did say go take a deep breath go do self-care to go like eh (laughs) You know, but when you say put my mallets up, I will go put my mallets up because I have seen that be a measure of success or like, you know, something that goes into a day of someone who is successful for that. But I don't see you taking a mental health day. I don't see you, you know, doing Mm -hmm. that. So how do we for the teachers who may not even be there themselves. Mm-hmm. Like that that weird pivotal moment where you want to embody that within your students, but you yourself have not learned how to do that. I mean, that's a weird area to exist oh. within.
1: It really, really is. And I I have, I have so many thoughts on that. First of all, I think that one way that I think we need to talk about self-care in a i I think the wellness industry is killing self-care right now. And I think and I think there's in a lot of ways, first of all, they're trying to make self-care sexy and therefore they're trying to sell things through self-care. I think that the self-care that a lot of us are seeing in media and getting ads for, et cetera, is a very like, you know, kind of heteronormative white capitalist American version of self-care. And I think that, you know, like if, you know, yoga might not be for everybody. And meditation might not be for everybody and journaling might not be for everybody. And I think that we might need to have lots of different versions of self-care that resonate with lots of different kinds of people and lots of different health identities. And and also let that be that self-care is something that grounds whatever individual person that is. I've worked with, you, know, and again, mindfulness meditation works for me and that but at the same time there's a lot of ways that we can help a person to be mindful that is not like sitting in silence for 25 minutes a day you know i had this um this Barry sax player i was working for um working with at one point as a therapist and they were like nathan if you tell me to meditate one more time i swear to god i was like okay no 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 i get you busy but what about this what about when you take apart and reassemble your instrument you fully focus on the sensory experience of doing that. Like, I want you to feel the coldness of the metal on your fingers. I want you to notice the sound that it makes when you put the pieces together. I want you to, every time you close the case, I want you to exhale as the case closes. And they're like, okay, whatever. And they thought it was kind of strange. And then the next week they were like, well, that was incredible. It's like, yeah, you might not have been ready to meditate, meditate, but we can turn assembling a Barry Saxon into meditation. Mm-hmm. You know? And like, that's, I think, you know, it's got to look different for everybody. But, you know, Lauren, you brought up a great point in terms of like, how do we help the teachers to practice it? Or how do we help anybody to practice it if it's kind of like too broad or, you know, kind of hard to pin down of a thought. I think that there's, when I teach undergraduates this stuff, I often hand out note cards because there's a real value in writing down on a note card, three things that you could use for self-care anywhere you go, anything you're doing. And then keep it in your instrument case or keep it in your backpack. because often we get in this situation where we have eight minutes to kill. And what do we do? We pull out our phone and we're just scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. When, what if we spent those eight minutes pulling out our note card and the note card says, breathe deeply, or the note card says, "Um, think of three things today that you're grateful for, you know, and things like that are such a better use of our time than being on Instagram for the 58th time that day. And, you know, but I do think though, that it really like, letting self-care be different for every single person and letting it connect to whatever their lived experience might be. Cause it's also like, I mean, if you're talking about a first generation college student who is entirely weighing over their head in their first semester, telling them to meditate a couple of times a day is going to be really insulting. Yeah, like that's going to like, like, <laughs> that's a, you know, like that's what, I guess that's what I meant by this, like this, like mainstream conceptualization of self-care is that like, you've also got to meet every student where they are. And that's why for that student, self-care might need to look a little bit different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Could you,
0: just to end this podcast, could you lead us in some mindful meditation? Just something very, very, for all of us to do, because I think that was something I wanted to take back to my students. It it was just a great teaching tool as well, but also something good for myself. Mm. So if you could just this would be like the last thing. Yeah. Uh, But it would, I think it would be amazing.
1: I love that. Okay. I don't have my little prayer bowl or my bells, So you're going to have to deal with me saying ding, but um, yes, absolutely. Okay. So um, the three of you and then whomever else is out in the universe, listening to us. um, First thing I'll encourage you to do, especially because we're in podcast form is push pause right now. If you are in a moment that you are not able to fully commit to what we're about to do. Um, so like if you're driving a car, maybe hit pause. If you are, um, on the bus, maybe hit pause and save this for a moment where you can be in kind of a quiet and like reflective space. So, um, next thing I'll encourage you to do is, um, if there's anything on your body that kind of is keeping you from feeling really like kind of grounded in yourself, like maybe like a big clunky name tag or your shoes or your glasses, if that's your thing, um, put those to the side, um. And the next thing I'll ask you to do is find a position in your chair that feels like it's it's got some grounding to it. Like I had a great meditation teacher that once told me to sit with dignity. And so um, another way I've described this to many, a band director and band kid or musician for that matter, is like sit like you are about to play your instrument with good musician posture, but then be like 5% softer with yourself. <laughs> so... And if you want to close your eyes, you're welcome to, but you don't have to. Um, And then find a place with your hands that feels natural and comfortable. I'm going to close my eyes now as well. And to get us started, all I'm going to have you do is focus on your breath. Focus on how you inhale and exhale. You don't have to change the breath any to simply notice how it's already happening. And as you continue to breathe, know that throughout this entire experience, if you find yourself struggling to stay grounded, that's normal. And you can always come back to just simply breathing. Next thing I'll have you do is I want you to picture yourself in a place that you find great comfort. It's going to be different for every single person, but picture yourself in a place where you find great comfort. Maybe it's a place from childhood. Maybe it's home. Maybe it's a place in nature. Picture yourself in a place where you feel great comfort. And as you continue to breathe, noting the inhale and the exhale, notice a couple of details about this place. Maybe notice some sounds that you hear or the temperature. or the things that you're looking at, or the smells. If at any point, again, remember, if you're having a hard time staying grounded with this image, just remind yourself kindly and non-judgmentally to focus on the breathing. Now that you're in this place it brings you comfort, I want you to conjure the image of somebody who is important to you in life and join them in this space that you are. Conjure up the image of somebody who is important to you and now place them next to you in this space. Notice them, notice what they're wearing how it feels to have them next to you now. And as you continue to breathe, look into their eyes and ask yourself, what do I need to hear from them right now? What do I need to hear from this person? Once that phrase has come to mind, ask them for it, receive it from them. Notice the sensation in your body of receiving this from them. As you hear the words As you feel the feelings, notice how it feels in your body to experience that. Now, as we wrap up, kindly wave goodbye to this person that you've summoned here. Notice the environment that you placed yourself in of comfort one last time. I'll give you about 15, 20 seconds of silence to finish enjoying this, and then I'll come back with some more instructions. Enjoy one final noticed breath. In through the nose. Out through the mouth. And whenever you feel ready, you can reopen your eyes and rejoin me in this space. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. Thanks, y'all. Thanks for asking me for that. That was awesome. Thank you. Mm. Thank you so much. I'm yeah.
2: happy to turn on every morning.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Um, mm. I am so thankful that you joined us today um, to share this, this specialty, um, mm. to share you with our our village. We yeah. call everyone here um, I love it. village. So thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you. And and thank you to the three of you and to the village. Please feel free to reach out to me. Um, You can include my email in any show notes. I'd love to just be a part of the conversation with people, but a ton of gratitude for this conversation. And I I, I, I often don't get to teach mindfulness meditation in the middle of my Sunday afternoon. So thank you for grounding me for the rest of the day too.
0: (laughs) And we will link all of your information down below. Uh, so please everyone that is watching please uh follow and and become part of of nathan's uh village as well uh and it's it'll be great so thank you again and uh for everybody's listening thank you for listening to another episode of rose to pitch have a great day